The Lance Wall Now Show is coming at you live from the master himself, with a special broadcast taken from one of Lance's most recent appearances. Tune in and get ready for some major revelation. So now we have to go into this direction. What do they do in Peru? Basically, they built a house that had the ability to accomplish three things. And I'm, I'm gonna just jump to that because of time. It's like the Wilberforce thing. Wilberforce mobilized the people of God to function differently as a house. He took the Christians, and what he did was he built a house for the nation. Well, how do you do that? You got your local church over here. But then what he did was he met in a place called the Clapham Estate, which was a businessman's house. He met with artists, he met with educators, he met with politicians, he met with pastors. He met with all seven realms of influence and they conspired together on how they were gonna raise the morality of UK and destroy uh, the power of slavery. And they recognized that not everybody responds to biblical arguments, so they came up with economic arguments. They came up with various reasons why slavery had to end. And at the end of that noble experiment, Wilberforce said, here's where we are now, we are in a sustained battle of public persuasion. If you want to know the secret sauce of what my friend did in Chile and what he does in these other nations, it's not the church rising up and showing up and having a rally. It's getting the secular community to resonate with the, uh, with the common ground of the attack against their children so that they in mass rise up and then, the, then all the politicians get nervous because they're now fighting their own constituencies. So the goal is the church becomes the catalyst in the spirit. But if I'm not mistaken, and we better make this distinction, when it comes down to a movement in America, not everybody's gonna become a Christian to fight transgenderism. But everybody will fight transgenderism if we frame it as an attack against your children. So the battle of public persuasion is on us. That's why I expect the enemy to come out in mass with media. You gotta be careful, you gotta be ready to be misrepresented and labeled. You have to wear that label. William Booth once had a group of people marching through London and someone in the crowd spit, boom, right on the shoulder of one of his uh, generals. And the man went to go grab a handkerchief and William Booth said, don't wipe it off, wear it like a badge. Now that's a different mentality. That's a warrior mentality. Where we are now is moving back into territory we gave up, don't expect it to be comfortably given back over. But if you aren't going to be going on to legislate, if you are, what, what Wilberforce did was they won the battle of public persuasion, mobilizing the church. And then they, uh, then they won the battle of legislation as well as persuasion because they got the house to make slavery illegal. What I'm saying is the three things that actually shape a culture is public persuasion, legislation, and litigation. Litigation is where you go to the court. Legislation is when you go to the government. Public persuasion is media, arts, and public displays of public protest and sentiment. That's how you actually see legislation be formed. That's how you see ideology become contagious in the United States. It's what happens out on the streets. That's essentially what a, what a gathering is. It's a public statement. Does that make sense to you? Because Christians love the spirit part till it comes down to the pragmatics of it which is it's public persuasion, it's going to be going out and opening your mouth, it's gonna be showing up in public, 
that public persuasion lends to legislation. Some of you have got to go into office. Some of you have got to go to the school board. Some of you are going to have to get involved with city council. If you think you're going to lob grenades safely from a Facebook post in an intercessory closet, that's not enough. You're going to, you're, that's why I open with this wonderful verse. In the end, your hands will be stretched forth and someone will take you where you don't want to go. And it's going to be the Holy Spirit. I know a lot of you don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. But that doesn't make a difference. God's calling us to go there because our absence in that place has left a vacuum Satan filled. So the Lord's calling you. You're going to watch out. He's going to call you into different opportunities to serve. If the Nehemiah project, which is the next phase here, when the house of God begins to move together as one in what God's doing, the next phase that kicks in is going to be God starts to restore the walls and the gates. This house of God restoration was Zerubbabel. The walls and the gates being restored was Nehemiah. These are the central actors in that. Notice they're both government figures. Zerubbabel, the governor of Israel, a believer who's a governor, working with, uh, working with Joshua the high priest. Then we have Nehemiah, who is going to be the governor in Israel, working with Ezra, the priest, teacher. The church and the state, believe it or not, have to come together under the laws of the kingdom with a church that is actually exerting influence over the nation. And there's a religious spirit that has been on the church for the last 10 years that has blocked it from going where it has to go. I'm going to call it out for what it is. Our biggest enemy in the church, surprise, surprise, is a religious devil. Now here's how a religious devil operates. A religious devil will operate this way. It'll say, it'll try to stop you right about here and say, your prayers are never going to get answered. Boom. Then God puts somebody in office. It starts to change things. Then the spirit, religious spirit goes here and says, stop right there. That's enough. You're getting in danger of getting carried away with too much politics. Too much politics in the pulpit. Oh, what are we finding out? Our problem is never too much politics in the pulpit. Preachers don't want to preach about politics. They lose people and money. It's never been a problem with too much politics in the pulpit. It's too little public awareness in the pulpit. So then the devil, what does he do? If you keep moving past that, you get to this level here, he'll stop right here and say, we'll just have meetings. But then if you move past that, it's like, no, we're going to go on to restoring the walls of marriage, restoring the walls around the church, restoring the walls around sane fiscal policy. I don't want a Great Depression for my children to have to work through. Rebuild the walls. Reoccupy the gates. But that religious spirit will meet you right where you're at and say, that's enough, stop right there. You have to have Jenny share that word she gave us on the call the other day. She said it was like a spirit came to her, a principality in a dream, and said, regarding this movement, it was something like, you can have, you can have whatever you want, so long as you practice, so you can have your meetings, but you have to have, what was it you said? It was a birth control. You have to practice birth control, meaning, you can have all of the intimacy with God and the, and, and the activity you want. Just don't let the thing conceive and become a movement. There was a negotiation going on. I was like, the devil's saying, you can have what you want. I don't want a movement. Because a movement, he knows, is what will take him out. Where does a movement go? A movement moves. It, it starts here. It works with the family, mama bears. Then boom, it goes over to education. Boom, it goes over to government. Bam.
bam, 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 bam. And here's the thing. Do you know how many callings are boring out there? How many Christians backslide? You know why? Because they're living in a land that will never actualize the promises they've got until they leave the security of the church mountain and move into the area God calls them to. They don't unlock the adventure. It's like that lady was talking today about evangelism. I mean, hilarious. But I mean, that's, the, that's, a, that's a model for how this thing works. You go into the porn convention. You don't, you don't feel like you're supposed to be there, but here you are. And then you learn, don't ask what that, that thing does, because that's the wrong question. You learn by trial. I start going into these economic meetings, government meetings, business meetings, meeting with senators, meeting with media. I go, oh my God, I'm gonna embarrass myself. I don't know what I'm doing. The Lord said to me, it's not important that you know what you're doing. It's important that you act like you know what you're doing. <laughs> you know, we're living in an age where Christians are nervous. Christians are waffling in their commitment. Preachers aren't really preaching a clear message. We don't know if we're raptured out or if we're supposed to go to the voting booth and take a stand. The truth of the matter is all that confusion dissipates when you get a fresh revelation of Jesus. God wants to give the church a fresh discovery of who Jesus is because Jesus actually manifests himself in different ways in different periods of time. When he first came, John the Baptist was very confused. He had seen the Lord coming with a baptism of fire and he was going to burn up the chaff and he was going to shake things up and Jesus actually came as a sacrifice. Well, end time Jesus is coming back as the judge of nations and most Christians are looking for the lamb. He's coming as a lion. Now, if you get this revelation of who Jesus is right now, it doesn't dissipate the beauty of his merciful forgiveness or his love. It just adds this realization that he's coming with authority and he wants his church to straighten up its back and begin to realize that the soon coming king is coming as the judge of nations. The revelation of end time Jesus will put a mantle in your life that will embolden you with clarity and confidence. The thing that is missing most in the body of Christ, the fear of the Lord, and the boldness of the first century church is about to come to you with this powerful revelation. Go to LanceWallnow.com, uh, end times Jesus. That's LanceWallnow.com forward slash end times Jesus. And you're gonna hear this explosive, fresh, new revelation that just came to me recently this year that God wants the church to straighten up and strengthen itself because Jesus is coming with the armies of heaven and he's coming to do battle. the divine appointments come that way. This is the biblical pattern. The prophets prophesied 120 years before Cyrus came, Isaiah 45, he was predicted to come to power, a foreigner. Jeremiah prophesied 70 years of captivity. Daniel was there the whole time interceding, sees a 70 year prophecy, bursts it. Cyrus comes, boom, you, found, you got a ruler. God hits him and says, build me a house in Jerusalem. The Jews go back, begin working on the house. This is the prophetic pattern for our, our age. If we'll give God what he wants, he'll give us what he wants. If we'll give God what he wants, he'll give us what we want. That's what I want to say. And you know what God wants? He doesn't need a better idea. I work in the idea factory. I work with people that have ideas all the time. It's almost discouraging to have an idea or strategy meeting because so many times the strategies don't work. But here's what I do believe God's doing. I am calling my apostles and prophets and teachers and leaders together to move as one. Yes. What God is doing is he's using the scaffolding of current events to force God's leaders into proximity. And those that have a heart for the kingdom are having to go where we'd rather not go to do maybe what we'd rather not do. But ultimately, this is why we were born. 
We're born for this conflict. So the house of God right now, and you see, and uh, Papa Che over here, I'm talking to him with, with HIM. He is so on the same page. This is what happens, you start having meaningful coincidences. I was talking about, you know where we need to have the church planting? Here's the deal, there's a new kind of church. I really believe in the local church, I believe, but I'm beginning to believe in something called apostolic hubs. An apostolic hub is a church that is designed to meet the local needs of its community, but to field believers into all seven domains of influence. I'm gonna pray over the media, I'm gonna pray over the business, I'm gonna pray over education, and then I'm gonna to try to work together with other believers in my city, because together our goal is to occupy the gates of influence. That's a different kind of church. I believe that's the, the house God's raising up. It's a combination of I'm not only here for my own people, I'm here for the city where God put me. And then we begin to take responsibility for these places. Instead of going woke and bowing the knee to the latest deity, we actually start to plant our people. And when you plant them there, what are you planting? Microchurch. The era of megachurch was fine, but it didn't save America. You know what'll save America? Microchurch. Because microchurch is David with a slingshot. It's small, that's the new big. So when you go into these places and you start to work your way up the mountain to the point of influence up here, because you've got innovation, you've got anointing, you've got, you've got creativity, you've got an excellent spirit, you've got divine appointments. You're supposed to be the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. Those Old Testament Jewish prophecies my forefathers have were meant for Gentiles. And because the church is more focused on the rapture than on occupying till he comes, we don't think in terms of going there. We think of that as the world. Well, in fact, all of that belongs to Jesus right now. It belongs to Jesus right now. So I say all seven of these areas, that some place has your name on it. Now what about your children? One day I was talking to my kids and I was giving them a real apocalyptic breakdown about how bad the world was, what was happening, how the enemy and Soros and these guys were taking over. And I never forget, my daughter looked up at me, I got so convicted, it was like an arrow to the heart. She was sitting there with uh, her girlfriend, uh, Haley Fentress, and they looked at me and she goes, but daddy, what about my destiny? <laughs> All these years she's hearing me preach about fulfill your calling, your destiny, this calls of God, prophesying over people, things God wants to do. Then I start looking at what's coming, and the Lord said, you have to be very careful how you interpret what you see. Because you see, the Pollyannish Christian doesn't see what's coming. Noah moved with fear, prepared an ark. I see what's coming. But God's showing me how to prepare for the saving of his purpose. Then the Lord started revealing something to me. He said, you have to have a vision for, your, for the calling of the next generation that isn't a call to escape, but a call to go in. So what I'm saying to you mama bears is not just save your children, but save them from a, from, a, from a dystopian prophetic world. Either that or a Pollyannish prophetic world where all you gotta do is just be filled with the spirit, everything works out. You have to actually show them how to go to war for the destiny God gave them. So here's where we are now. I'll give you a verse in the Bible as we finish it up. And it's, um, go to 2 Kings chapter 13. Because we're in the, the combination right now of all these things are working together. It's like there's stages in the Bible. 
But what's happening now is we're actually praying in for God to raise up Cyrus rulers. We got election cycles all the time. We're watching God rebuild the house. It's the, it's the, it's the, the building project right now that God's focused on. Reconfiguring our relationships. The house isn't blocks, it's people. And so I'm open to see who God is going to connect me with. So I'm looking to see where are the stones coming together, living stones to build a structure for the anointing. But at the same time, I know the structure is the Nehemiah project is recovering stuff we've lost before it's too late. What's the final stage, the final phase? When Jesus comes back, there's only two kinds of nations that are going to be here, sheep nations and goat nations. Do you know the Antichrist will arise and will go to war? Here's the interesting thing. Somebody isn't cooperating with him or he isn't fighting for three and a half years. Your goal and your, your job is to make sure that your city, your town, your community is a sheep nation. When the nations are gathered before him, he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from his, uh, his sheep from the goats. And he's going to put the sheep at his right hand. He's going to say, come enter into the kingdom, prepare for you before uh, from, from the foundation of the world. For as much as you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me. The criteria for how Jesus will judge nations when he returns is how they treated the people of God. The test is going to be Israel and the Christian. The Antichrist ultimately is going to target Israel and the Christians. But evidently there's going to be people that are going to be sheep nations. Why not fight for your sons and your daughters to see your city, town, state, region become sheep? I know this is a wild concept, but this is what Jesus says. The promise in the, the third group of overcomers in the book of Revelation is, I will give you power over the nations. I don't think we're supposed to ignore nations. Nations are the gift of God. There's something very prophetic about what happened there today with the flags up here, because the religious spirit has even robbed the church of a sense of, uh, of warring for the inheritance of Jesus over a nation he created for himself. 2 Kings chapter 13, and here's what, uh, what my concern is. 2 Kings 13, I believe there is yet, and I don't say this to motivate you, I say it because I have a conviction. I believe there is yet one more great revival thrust in the loins of the United States. And when I say that, I'm talking like Azusa Street, I'm talking like the 1948 revival, the Latter Rain revival. There is one more pent up, powerful punch that the body of Christ is destined to deliver in the United States to rock the system. I believe that this uh, awakening has already started. And I think, I'm telling you, I wanna go back to this. The religious spirit will fight this. Christian, mark well who comes against this movement. You're going to see the modern-day equivalent of the Sadducees. We have to do everything we can to make sure that everybody feels welcome and understands exactly what it is and what it isn't. But those people that want to label it as dominionism and Christian nationalism, they're the ones you got to watch out for because the devil will throw that label on it even though that is not what it is. And those that agree with it and join the chorus, mark this well, that's the ones that are under the religious spirit. Your job is to stay free from the strife, but recognize where the devil is. Second, Second Kings chapter 13 says this. Verse 14, Elijah became sick with the illness of which he would die. And then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. 
And Elijah said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elijah put his hands on the king's hands. Notice the anointing, the spirit, the prayer, the intercession, the prophetic goes on someone who has secular authority because they're in the strong man's house. We have to work with people that are in the strong man's house. We have to put our people in proximity to the strong man in the house to bind the strong man. You can't do that from the distance over here. You gotta go into the strong man's house. The king has to have hands laid on him. The king has authority in government. Elisha, the prophet, the intercessor, the man of God puts his hands on the person that has sphere authority in government. And he says, open the east window. He gives him direction, gives him a word of knowledge, gives him prophetic guidance. He opens it. Then Elijah said, now shoot. He shot. The awakening was released. The revival was launched. That final movement that would happen before Elisha leaves was, was authorized. And then he said, the hour of the Lord's deliverance and the hour of deliverance from Syria, for you must, 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 everybody say must. You must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. And he said, take the arrows now. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. This time he didn't give him instruction. He just let him reveal what was in him. And so the king took those arrows and went and stopped. And the old prophet got angry. And he said, you should have struck five or six times then you would have actually destroyed your enemy. But now you're only gonna have temporary relief. I'm telling you, God's gonna give America one more great revival. Do you wanna know what was unfortunate about Asbury? I'm gonna put it out there, because no one said about it. We got enough distance now, so it's antiseptic. I'm not gonna stir up a big hornet's nest. But I'll tell you what, a religious spirit will run to a revival. Because the first thing the people protecting and hovering over it wanted to make sure was that they kind of, you don't need to protect God. They didn't want it to go. Now, whatever happened to the Asbury revival, tell you what didn't happen. It didn't go from there into the other areas of culture it could have metastasized into. Everybody complimented them on the decision not to let Tucker Carlson come with his camera to go view it. That was the biggest missed opportunity we had since John Wimber left the Beatles in order to be an evangelist. John Weaver had a soul winning gift. He was, a, he was asked to be the road manager for the Beatles. He said no because it interfered with his Bible studies. Big miss for John Wimber, he would have led the Beatles to Jesus. So here's the deal. Tucker should have gone down. He would have brought like a camera crew and he would have had two or three people, could have been up in the balcony. The fact is he would have been in the presence of God interviewing sincere converters. He would have had the touch of heaven on his life. Instead, what happens is, this always happens with a, with, a, with a religious spirit. In order to protect the purity of something, it, it emasculates what it's just supposed to circumcise. It goes too far. This movement has got to strike the arrows. It cannot just go here to the church, we got religious liberty. It can't just go to your family and your children. We've got to hit it five or six times. We've got to go all the way through. Or mark my words, you'll have a temporary relief. And then your children are going to have to fight the same devil you didn't take out. 
you have to strike the ground with the intention of taking all seven. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Did you enjoy this latest episode? Please remember to share it with your friends, because the more knowledge you have, the better equipped you are to navigate the world.